Welcome to Kizuna, a Tayson innovation podcast. Like Kizuna, the Japanese word for enduring bonds between people, we believe in the power of bringing people together when it comes to developing the newest technologies of the future. Kizuna is a podcast for humans by humans. My name is Francisca. I'm an innovation advisor and your host of this podcast. And in today's episode, we talk about the role of product design and materials. And with me, we have again Jay Lesher, the fusionist and emerging technology strategist. Hi, Jay. How are you? And what comes to your mind when you think about product design and the role of materials? Hello, Francisca. Well, what comes into my mind? Immediately, how important it is to have design that serves the human, that serves the one who uses it. So any kind of impractical design, something where you do not really get what you are doing. When you have to read 150 pages of manual just to get an idea of it. So it's very important because this is how the product speaks to the user, to the client, to the customer, to the human. Cool. Before we dive deep into the product and uh, product side of things and to everything around this and the humans, I want to introduce you to Kate McIntyre. She's an artist, director, innovator, and technologist. And she's adding a complete new perspective to the technology industry. One of her famous projects is the Dartini Futurist Car. We will talk about it in a second. She worked with stars like Cardi B and Leto. And before I'm talking too much now, Katie, the stage is yours. Welcome to Kisuna. How are you today? Hi, Francisca. Thank you so much for the kind introduction. Um, I'm great. I'm super excited to, to be here to be talking about innovation, product design, the future. I think it's going to be a really exciting chat. So thanks for having me. Yeah, you're welcome. When you think about product design, what is your personal definition of it? How would you, you know, describe it in today's world? I mean, I think similar to what Jay said, it is to serve a function, it is to provide a, you know, on the basic level, the origins of product design is creating a tool that can be used for some something of any form. I think that um, function can be defined in different ways. Sometimes expression can be function. Sometimes um, util complete uh, singular utility can be function. I think that it sort of depends on um, how you view the value of certain kinds of products. I think um, my definition of product design or my personal, my personal work is the combination of expression and the value of art as it relates to culture, as well as function um, as it pertains to industrial design and innovation around the future. But I would also say that um, I think product design has been kind of stagnant in current times a little bit in the sense that there has been almost like a uniform approach to a lot of like at least big corporation focused uh, product design. And what I'm interested in is evoking new kinds of emotions and providing a new kind of visual and cultural perspective to product design that also allows for representation, which is a function that isn't necessarily always seen as valuable within the space, but is one that I'm a huge proponent of. Mm. Um, are there any trends, Jay, that you observe at the moment when it comes to design in the industry? Well, of course, we see 
of course, multiple trends. Um, coming out of the industry, like for example, how shall we deal with uh, circularity or more or less sustainability currently? So materials are of course defining um, how we are setting up the design, this, this kind of language. Um, brands are currently redefining their optical, their visual language, when, uh, for example, concerning electric vehicles, when you don't really need the grill, it does not make sense in an electric vehicle anymore. So how will you redesign it with all of these new uh, LED or laser headlights and so on, when simply the whole light uh, lightning uh, um, language becomes very sleek, very dynamic, where the designers, of course, have far more possibilities uh, to, to implement this kind of design language. So we have, of course, uh, the trend from, from now these new technologies, uh, from the materials themselves, how will we approach them? Um, of course, it's as well um, some kind of trend uh, concerning the taste, how it changes. I mean, you remember of course, uh, these, these, these different trends in, in, um, in fashion taste, um, how they are changing. Uh, this is as well something um, when it comes, for example, to colors. Um, we had in the 80s slightly different colors than in the 90s, than right now. Each of these colors, a car in black looks always good. It can be as well in silver, while a white car you need to have the right proportions that it looks halfways, uh, halfways uh, good. So here, of course, multiple streams are coming together where design is important, where it's being underlined or it can underline or simply eliminates the whole product. Yeah. And Katie, um, I mean, you talked about presentation um, before. What do you, when you look at the industry in general, what trends do you observe? Um, at the very moment from other designers and directors? Um, I think there is still like a strong maintenance of like Bauhaus principles when it comes to like the visual languages of a lot of product design that's been fairly consistent over like the past 50 years. But I think it's just being evoked in, in just new and similar ways. Um, I think that there is a strong interest into material design, especially from like startups that focus on using uh, new kinds of materials that have been developed either by like MIT or, or other uh, sort of research facilities that have a higher degree of sustainability or coexistence, which Timothy Morton also does a lot of research into, who's a professor who has a book on coexistence. Um, I think that there is... Yeah, there's a lot of interest in that. I would also say that, um, I mean, I could talk about AI forever, but <laughs> we'll just table that for a second. Um, I, I, I think that what has particularly I found interesting is there are UI UX designers that have been interested in sort of different um, different ways that the mind works. And so there's like a project uh, that's called Mercury that talks about sort of how someone with ADHD interacts with an interface and how to reduce stimulation and how to sort of create interface design that is uh, designed to bring a sense of ser serenity and calm and is influenced by East Asian aesthetics. And I think that there is something interesting there when it comes to 
product design and sort of not just focusing on like the most, the, the, you know, the individual that can handle the most stimulation, but also thinking about how can we reduce stimulation to create a better product design experience. And I would say that that is probably a new trend that's, you know, coming into the surface because I don't think it's necessarily been a priority, especially for like big tech to focus on stuff like that. But I personally find that really fascinating. Um, uh, part of the philosophy of that particular project I described is like the desktop you know, we wouldn't, if we had our, um, our desk at, at home, we wouldn't put a giant photo on it while we're working. How distracting would that be if we had like, but, and we wouldn't have constant files all over our desk, but that is the way a desktop is currently set up. So there's a lot of room for innovating the module systems in which we like work. But I think that that is a good, um, kind of, com that's just like a good example of like how we can just reimagine things that we have considered ubiquitous and give them a new perspective. And I think that that is a really interesting trend in product design is just mm -hmm. like completely rethinking from a different angle, things that we think are like unchangeable, uh, which is kind of a general thing, but I, I, yeah, I'm attracted to that for sure. Yeah. That's so cool. Let's talk about your work, actually. Um, and I want us to look at the work first. Um, let's look at Zakini. Um, Zay, when you look at this super cool car, you know, what comes to your mind? What do you feel? Um, and yeah, what, what does it, what does it, you know, what does it, uh, what does it make you feel? So. When I see or when I've seen this car the first time, when, when Katie showed this to me, um, it reminded me on how cars have been, how they've been in the past, beautiful with organic structures, when they simply, you looked at them and you knew they are fast. I'm not talking about Lamborghini, Porsche or whatever fast, but really this kind of organic, hey, I'm like a gazelle, I'm pretty fast. So this is, of course, one thing that is fascinating, simply to see the, these, these beautiful grown structures, um, female structures, of course. When I then looked the second time onto this vehicle or onto this concept, I started to think about what else can come around. So instead of using, for example, conventional, regular uh, wheels, How could this be improved with something really high end? What else can we see with it in this car? I mean, this, this, the form, the design of this car is so, so appealing and so universal that you could imagine it as well in some kind of vertical takeoff and landing. Mm -hmm. You could imagine this as well in some kind of speedboat put a few foils under it, uh, huge propeller and so on, and this thing will go with uh, amazing speed over the ocean. So what I see here as is a huge possibility to get back beautiful designs. Yeah. When you are looking onto the landscape right now, how cars look like. I mean, the, the designers more or less just change the brand. They are, these are the same guys. It's, it's a huge family. So therefore our cars look the same. They are dictated by the aerodynamics. They are dictated partly, of course, by the CI. So they need to have this huge grill in some cases. They do to have some, some, some windings and so on. So going back to something that is natural, that fits around the human. 
is something that, in my opinion, was lost for a long time. Hmm. And when I looked at it, actually, it's the first car I want to buy, which is so nice, actually, because I was never a huge uh, car fan. And on an emotional level, um, I mean, I, I was a dancer, I'm still dancing, but it really makes me think about moving and all the shapes and structures and how the light is capturing it is just just amazing and it also reminds me of water in some in some way so mm -hmm. um but yeah this is how it speaks to me um katie i would love to know you know where did this journey of this immense like project start you know where did you um get inspired and how did you start building this yeah well thanks so much for all the positive feedback on Dakini. i definitely appreciate it and also having like a woman respond that way was definitely a huge uh, motivation behind it i think that um, i mean my background was in big tech so i was working on product designs for some of the biggest technology companies on the planet and um, i kind of recognized just through my own research and, and the fact that I was heavily interested in the industry, that there was a lot of precedent and equity and these aesthetics that had been developed with sort of a feminine form. And I, I use that word because I think it's universal, but we all have to sort of think about design differently when we relate to it with that term. But I think that what I recognized was like Zaha Hadid, Iris Van Arpen, uh, Judy Chicago have all been devoting their lives to essentially studying the history of visual languages and also womanhood and the relationship to women, which is universal, universal and sort of bringing that into the context of architecture, into um, fine art and into uh, film and all of these other elements in fashion. And I think that all of those worlds are very closely related or almost like cousin disciplines to product design. And so it seemed obvious to me that a next step in this development would be to look at developing a product that was building off these principles of sort of the uh, the female form and the history of like Venus sculptures and, and invoking that in the form of a, a vehicle. And what's interesting is that like women have been the source of cars for different car companies like Pugani, for instance. But my particular vehicle has like a yonic structure on the hood and has a very sort of symbol, uh, strong symbolism of like um, womanhood in a different context that you have not seen in other car designs. And I think the reason for that is because it's essentially a feminist art theory that has not really been necessarily embraced within these contexts. But I think what's powerful about it is that when it's, it's not just the visual side, but when you also mirror it with the material side, like Neri Oxman talks a lot about nurturing nature and having that she mothers nature. Like there's definitely a relationship of sort of the feminine and how she approaches her philosophy of material design. And so when you combine that principle with the visual and historical element, then that's where you get Dakini. And then that's why I have sort of this feminine future umbrella that encompasses those things. Um, and yeah, that is sort of, I think all of these influences and inspirations led me down this path. But I would also say the lack of interest and the resistance within big tech to consider women consumers valuable was a huge inspiration behind this because I recognize that like you, like you just said, I myself had not really felt I mean, I appreciate uh, some electric vehicles and uh, I like in terms of the history of car design, I like Milani's car designs a lot, but I hadn't felt like, oh, when I saw a vehicle, this is for me, this is designed for me. And I think that that's a huge 
problem in the sense that women um, are some of the highest spending purchases or control most of the spending purchases in households. Uh, They influence a lot of auto purchases specifically. uh, And they also are not being directly spoken to through the design, uh, the history of the, uh, the, the design of the vehicle. And I think that I really wanted to take a holistic approach to thinking about, I want to create a car that women immediately recognize is like a representation of them in a space they haven't seen before and also have an emotional resonance. And I think the deeper layers of if someone looks at this and says, oh, well, that's not feminine. I think feminine is like pink and bows. It's like, well, that is not a very historical rooted vision of feminine. If you look at Venus sculptures and the history of like female um, empowerment in terms of art and things like that, like Judy Chicago's work, you'll see this and you'll understand how it is. So I think that, um, or even Zaha Hadid. So I think that that is sort of my long, long answer to, to that question is there's a lot of different influences that push me towards this, but ultimately the end goal is to have someone like yourself who is innovative, who sort of is proud of their femininity and womanhood and sees a concept like this and and resonates. And I think that that is the, the goal and that made me happy to hear. <laughs> oh, sounds so cool. Um, what, are, what were the, I mean, what were the challenges, you know, because I can only imagine, you know, like, um, yeah, you had the driver, you had the motivation, um, but like, what were the challenges that you faced because of the the way the industry is, you know, when you designed um, the Kini? I mean, I think I'm pretty strong in the sense that there, there, some of the challenges would be more on the confidence side, like, you know, me putting out this vehicle, there's immediately, because of me being like a you know, blonde woman that's semi glamorous. People are going like, "Oh, but do you, do you know what you're doing? And you know, have you done any research?" And it's like, uh, "Yeah, actually, I've been looking into this for a really long time and studying all the details and nuance and studying Zaha Deed's architecture and her boat structures and looking at how to sort of evoke that into the context of a vehicle, like in in Rhino and studying surfaces and like I've sort of been deep into this. But I think that if I didn't have a sense of myself, I would have crumbled at this project." at the get-go, just in the sense that immediately there's bias placed on me of, oh, this must not be legitimate or, oh, this is just just a fun experiment because it's challenging. It challenges the, the standards of the industry because it's speaking to a new audience that has been inherently ignored. So I think that uh, to that point, some of the challenges have just been certain kinds of, you know, uh, attacks on me as a person almost. But I would say that that hasn't really swayed me in any capacity. If anything, I think I mean, my experiences in tech kind of, I mean, <laughs> you, you, I, you can't kind of walk through tech without, you know, gaining some kind of a backbone or like a, a, sec, a strong, uh, thick skin. So I think that it, it hasn't really uh, impacted me that much. But I would also say that just some of the challenges were yeah, like there was doubt around me of like, oh, you can't do this. Like when I was first starting this, I had a lot of people say to me, oh, you'll never be able to design a car. It's, it's too big. It's too impossible. And I think about it and the amazing people that have been brought into my life because of this project has just proven to me how it is completely the right path for me. Um, and that I'm so proud that I made sort of this leap and that I um, took on this role. But yeah, I would say, I mean, it's not an easy feat because a vehicle is super complex. It's like a universe. But I think that that's what I find really fascinating is that Dakini, like 10.0, say in like 10 years, is probably going to look 
pretty different with maybe some a lot of the similar heartbeat but i think that there is so much room for evolution and as like an i think that that's why i like being an artist and technologist is because there will be challenges that come every every year on as it gets bigger and develops and even bringing it into the physical world will be a challenge of this uh, vehicle because it sort of redefines manufacturing principles and that it needs a more organic approach to production, which I think uh, the, the, the biggest challenges are going to be basically what comes next in terms of like, re- like not just sort of right now, there's sort of an assembly line formulation of how vehicles are developed where they like sort of reuse a lot of like stainless steel that comes out of even like crash vehicles and repurpose it. And it's all kind of in a boxed kind of format, but this has a different relationship. It would need to be developed with like organic biopolymers. Uh, it would need to sort of be influenced by the 3D printing st- uh, strategies that's come out of the MIT Media Lab in terms of like how it could be developed using new kinds of production techniques. So I think that all of those things um, are challenging and that they are not the standard. But I also think that it's where the future is going if you're paying attention. So it's just a matter of what kind of company... Uh, is is genuinely interested in not being behind and wanting to wanting to be in front of of sort of the movement of coexistence and um, yeah I mean I think about um, sort of my last answer point to this question very long answer but I think about how you know some of the trains last summer when I was in London couldn't run because it was too hot and I think about the material design and how that relates to the planet. And how that relates to um, forthcoming issues as it relates to climate change. And I think that developing vehicles that are designed for coexistence, that could be designed for multipurpose, as Jay said, like a mixed combination between a boat and a car would be super useful in a lot of different places in the world. So I think that there is a lot of reason to, although the challenges are large, to feel inspired and hopeful, I guess. That's my my answer. Wow, that's so cool. Yeah. Jay, do you want to add something to it? I want to buy it. <laughs> Let's talk a no, little bit. You are, yeah. you, are, you, you, you are right. It's yeah. the materials. It's the production. The current mm. state of production is more or less uh, how our vehicles look like is uh, more or less that we are having standardized components that needs to be added. So we have this huge stamping machine where sheet metal is being bended and so on and so on. So as well, the whole manufacturing needs to change when we want to return towards these these organic structures, towards something that is more appealing, towards something that uh, makes fun again. And what do we, like, what can we do? Like, what can we need to, what can we do basically to make this change happen? You know, when we talk about the material selection and design, what do you think has to change when it comes to the mindset maybe of big corporates now that really have the power to push these ideas forward? Um, what do you think has to change? Um, corporates. <laughs> so... Deep side. <laughs> Corporates are more or less profit oriented. They are not. No, it's it's. It, this would be unfair to say it like this. So, um, a corporate mindset needs to change into intrinsic motivation. They need to realize that how it is right now, it's not the right way. So, when do corporates do something different? When a competitor brings something different that is highly successful, then each of them wants to copy it. 
Second possibility how to change such a mindset is, of course, the next generation, not just of the customers, but as well of the employees. When they simply tell the corporates to, to the management uh, uh, layers, um, we don't want to do it like this. This mm. is 100-year-old approach. We want to do it in a different way. Um, in my opinion, the chance to change this will come as soon the, especially the automotives realize that they are just part of an infrastructure, that they are not that powerful anymore, how they've been the last 100 years. Times are changing. Therefore, as well, the design, the purpose will change. It needs to adapt on the new reel. It needs to adapt on the new uh, customers. It needs to adapt on the new type of infrastructure. So this will somehow sneak into our life who will not ad uh, do not adapt on this new kind of reality uh, is simply obsolete. That's simply it is. Mm. Yeah. Um, let's talk about eco-design. You know, I know it's kind of like a buzzword, but um, Katie, what's your opinion? You know, how can we make design more sustainable and what is the role of materials in this regard? I mean... Definitely, it's important. But like, how do you see that? How, what does eco-design mean to you? I think that, you know, I think to some extent, eco-design is something that a lot of people kind of kind of throw out there in different capacities, depending on, I mean, it's sort of a coin term as uh, a lot of consumers are looking for that. So I think that it's, it's um, like I've heard zero waste and stuff from also like companies that I don't even know if that's possible. Um, so I think that my perspective though on like the best of eco design is actually basically what, yeah, what I was talking about earlier, which is I think a lot of the work that's been coming out of MIT and some other companies, which is basically the next industrial revolution. I think that we have... If my prediction is that there there was going to be a time where everything was like the steel industrial, like sort of like patriarchal, like, oh, we must control the materials, even though this is not like good for the planet. And then we're sort of at a breaking point where if there's it's almost like to go forwards, we need to go backwards and sort of have it revert to our connection with nature that's more natural and how we approach um, product design. And I think that that is sort of how I see, I guess, eco design of now and of the future is actually using like um, biopolymers and sort of the structures of things, having organic developments of vehicles and, and other kinds of things. I think that the um, the Silk Pavilion uh, by Neri Oxman is a good example of how something can organically be grown and built um, as a structure versus having the approach, the current manufacturing um, approach. So I think that sort of rethinking our philosophies um, in terms of studying nature and doing what nature did, but applying that to new kinds of technology in a way that could actually be you know, more efficient, could be easy, like the materials could be less expensive if, you know, for what she does, she created like a new kind of cement that uses like um, pectin, which is found in, I think like shrimp shells or something like this. And then a material that's found in the skin of apples and sort of repurposing that into the context of cement that isn't, doesn't last a gazillion years, lasts like 200 years or something. But the point is that there is already, I think nature provides everything we need, but 
I think we've approached it the wrong way in a sense that we have a, anything that's not sustainable inherently in the name will need to be reworked anyways. So I think that we're finding, I guess, more organic materials that can be reimagined into new kinds of material design. And I think that that is the future and that's super exciting. And I think that that is also what I hope the future of Dakini will be as well as along with those principles. Um, but yeah, I guess that's kind of how I see eco-design is a deeper connection with nature, which I think is an inherent part of being human that we desire. Has anyone ever sat in traffic for an hour and wished they could be outside? Like there is a connection between a vehicle and the natural world that should exist in a more tangible capacity. So I think that that is also what I, I think about product design in terms of creating materials that are more deeply connected to the earth and also the experience of actually being in the vehicle. Although this, this current project is more focused on the exterior hardware, but the interior that I'm envisioning for this is very much more of an open connection, almost like a serene sanctuary versus focusing on like uh, aggression, speed mobility, you know, things like that. Um, it's also about, although it's going to be fast, it's about a, how you also exist in like more of a, a still state, like when you are in traffic or something, you would feel more connected to nature and more at peace and maybe even enjoy like thinking, Oh, I want, hope I can get to my car. It's almost like going to a spa. Yeah. It's very calm and peaceful versus feeling like you're just sitting there for hours and there you're stuck inside of a, you know, a metal box. So I think that that is sort of part of my philosophy is thinking about the utility in um, sort of uh, time periods of usage. And I think that that relates a lot to eco design is, is this connection with the natural world. But yeah, that's my answer. <laughs> now, yeah, I agree. I think the more human centered uh, the design is, the more sustainable is it automatically, you know, if you think about it like this. And um, I also think maybe the like experience in the car will change and becomes more like, as you said, like this place of calm and this place of comfort, you know and embodies you rather than you have to be in it like a box. Um, Jay, do you have any examples when it comes to eco design that would be super interesting for our audience? Um, well, hmm. eco-design is right now really more and more becoming important because we have to rethink um, through our linear economy what will be the next steps. Um, some of my clients, of course, ask me as, as well, what is it about this eco-design? How can we approach this? What does it mean for us? Then I'm explaining them that part of this is more or less like two, two, two ways of a coin, uh, two sides of a coin. The first one is how uh, Katie said, it's about sustainability. It's about recyclability. Can I reuse the material? So following as well, again, I'm repeating this, um, the Japanese philosophies of Motanai and Kintsugi. So can I upcycle it? Can I reuse it? Can I, and so on and so So being as mindful as possible with the materials. The, the second part of the coin is um, things that I do not need to recycle, that I do not need to upcycle and so on, are maybe as well a little bit sometimes more sustainable than if I have to put again and again energy into these small cycles. So um, the design itself needs to be very mindful 
what kind of structures is something that maybe should last for a gazillion of years, like uh, let's say some kind of huge mega structure to hold something, where you can then take all of the components that are attached onto the structure that can and should be replaceable. So here, of course, uh, this this uh, eco design that has to go as well hand in hand with a generative design or, or bionic design um, to get the most optimal outcome. If you ask me about successful implementations of this, these areas are so new that we do not have the long-term experience on this. Of course, if you are looking to how we've built stuff in the past, when it was a bit more sustainable, when we've used more organic uh, materials that simply were rotting after they've not been used anymore. Um, these were the first baby steps. Then for a long period, we simply forgot it. And we've been surrounded by our lidar economy to simply do our build, trash, build, trash, build, trash. This is currently changing. We have to re relearn this. Mm. What can we learn um, from artists? I mean, Katie, you yourself, you're an artist as well, but how can we, um, I think that, because that's, that's always like very, very helpful to bring more creatives into these like solutions as well. What can we learn from artists when it comes to product design and maybe also in your personal work? What do you learn from, from art, you know, and the people that actually hate pictures, for example, or the new artists that are out there at the moment like you? Yeah. Um, I mean, I actually, I've talked a lot about this with, um, Timmy, who is a, a innovation expert at Volvo that, um, actually Jay introduced me to, which is, I think that the best kind of innovation is sort of where like Picasso meets Einstein. So where fine art meets like the brilliance of engineering and technology and innovation. And you have sort of these new cultural perspectives or visual perspectives that are brought forth. And I think that to some extent, art has been kind of separated from the tech technology industry in, in the sense that I think that because they're in the current like big tech landscape, there's such a focus on mass, um, you know, mass consumption and production. I'm sure that, for instance, if Picasso walked in with one of his paintings and said, let's do something with this, they might say like, that's ridiculous. No one's going to understand this. Say this a hundred years ago, they say no one is going to understand this. You know, we have to do something that people are going to get this is too out there. So I mm -hmm. think that that's a problem in the sense that when you have brilliance, when it comes to art, to artistry, there is an inherent long-term value that goes so far beyond what like a single uh, creative iteration that's, you know, hoping to appeal to the masses is going to have. So I think that um, artists bring a perspective and I, I sort of are studying the cultural, uh, uh, the cultural world from a bird's eye point of view and looking as well ahead. And I think artists are visionaries and, and are the best artists are in the sense that they're thinking of the future and they're, if they're on the avant-garde, they're actually bringing it into society. So I think that technology is also looking into the future. And I think that the best case scenario is allowing artists to kind of um, also show visions of how this, this world can develop and then working in tandem with them on the engineering, um, on the innovation side to bring these things into existence. But I also, I see Dakini, for instance, as just as much of a technology and innovation piece as it is an art piece. Um, and it has like a cultural purpose. So I think that, for instance, like if Basquiat 
designed a part, he would have a totally different perspective than someone else because he's also bringing to the table something that's personal and universal, which I think is inherent to a lot of really great art is that it's telling the story of an Mm -hmm. artist and their perspective in the world. Like there's no way I couldn't have created this vehicle without being a woman and having lived in the world and experienced things and translating that into visual mediums. And then also um, sort of building on that in the context of technology. So I think that, yeah, the, the personal and the universal aspect of art is super valuable and bringing that into the context of innovation and technology is definitely something that can be learned from. But I think that more art movements specifically need to be embraced in the um, ideation and form, um, formation process of new kinds of technology. Like it shouldn't just be the Bauhaus on the wall. There should be, you know, feminist art movement with uh, lots of different kinds of women artists. And there should also be, you know, like African art movements and, and uh, like Bastiat is a great example. And uh, Virgil Abloh is a great example too. There should be people on the wall that have been so massive and influential for culture that are influencing the perspectives that we bring on a visual and cultural perspective into the technology field that are actively being ignored. Um, so I think that that, that is super interesting. Like, uh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I think especially, I mean, that's actually, yeah. When I think when, when a human can, you know, connect with technology and the universe, but highly individual level as well, you know, then the technology really works just because we as humans have to use the technology, you know, and I think that's a lot of times where people underestimate the power of vision and creativity and art in this field because you know we need to connect and you know like if we don't connect with it you know it like it's you know it doesn't matter um day what do you think about um the relationship between art i mean creativity as well um how can we bring this world more into uh the technology sector well, the technology sector is some kind of, it can be a very sterile sector. So here, anything that has to do with art, that has to do with more or less with culture is very important because this is more or less, I don't want to call it the soul of these products, but it's very important. If you have something very clean that is just structured around how to use it, that just form follows fun- a function where you have really just this one thing that is for this one stuff and so on. Instead of playing, we humans, we are visually oriented beings. And uh, we need as well something to distract us a bit with these more complex structures that are not so boring. Um, We can relate to them a bit more. So here it's, it's important for technology to have this kind of of exit door through art, through culture. What Katie said is as well very important. This cultural context, if it's it's, uh, um, from Africa, some kind of tribals, if it's, uh, let's say, something uh, from um, some flourish designs, if it's something that relates to Bauhaus because it's simply part of of a specific culture, what I see here is more and more influences, regional influences into product design so that you can see, okay, this comes from here. It describes the beauty of this one specific region. It does not need to be liked by someone else. 
So again, from humans for humans, mm -hmm. it completely strips down that through art, through this culture, culture, we we will get products that fulfill our needs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We're almost at the end, unfortunately, and we have the last question and the audience um, maybe know already what I'm going to ask, but Katie, this is the question where we end usually the Kisuna episode. Um, how do you envision the future? And when you think specifically about the year 2050, when it comes to product design and design in general? Yeah, um, well... Uh, it's funny that you use the term 2050 because I had a mentor back in college of uh, the late great Virgil Abloh who had me work on a um, an innovation kind of incubator that was focused on creating art and design um, in the year 2050. So I think that it's it's funny that you, it's <laughs> coincidence that you asked me that. And I think that um, I've always been kind of focused on on looking ahead. And I guess I've had mentors that encouraged that in me. Um, but I would say that on the on the on the highest hierarchical level i would say that the future hopefully in 2050 will be a different kind of fluid imaginative way of approaching innovation and i think that ai is a basis i think the reason it's exploded so much in my personal opinion especially on the image making side is because there's a desire to see our imagination come to life in ways that it hasn't been personally or at this stage in time been accepted. And I think that something like Dakini is an example of a kind of product that's using the imagination and saying, okay, we don't have to just make a car that looks like every other car that's existed. Let's think about the principles of, of the future. Like for instance, as I mentioned, the MIT Media Lab, the research they're doing, um, Zaha Hadid, the, the work that she's done to in sort of creating architecture that is of a, a forward thinking nature. And also like for, in my opinion, you know, art movements and how that relates to the future. And sort of, I think that all of these things coming together um, in the context of innovation is where hopefully the future will go. But I also think it will, I think it's hopeful for me in the sense that I think to your response to this kind of vehicle, and I think that for a lot of the other product designs that I'm interested in, it's making people feel like their needs can actually be addressed, that there isn't just a conglomerate that has complete power that can ignore the needs of people, but actually individual innovators are going to gain more weight and power in the industry. And I think that that will help to shift the balance of big tech and also create new kinds of cultural dynamics. Like I think that um, women, for instance, my goal is hopefully, you know, women seeing this vehicle, knowing that I was like the lead designer behind it will have a similar effect to what happened with the Queen's Gambit, where all of these girls went out and learned chess. Like we need to have more representation of women mm -hmm. Kinds of fields of different minorities in, in, in this industry. And I think that the results in that will be there will be just massive, you know, star power to these new kinds of individuals that represent the future in a different way because they also represent the masses. And I think that that is super exciting. And um, I think that hopefully the future in 2050 will have lots of representation in terms of who is leading innovation and who is creating new kinds of structures and systems and also have new approaches that can be more long lasting that are more designed towards coexistence and also um 
be more free. I think that there there's innovation should be, um, you know, at its best opening up the perspective of the world in different ways. And I think that it's strange that I, I feel like we've come, these corporate structures are so resistant now towards real innovation. It's about, you know, reinforcing iteration, as Jay said, making profit immediately, not investing in the future in a really real way by doing exploration. So I think that hopefully in 2050, there will just be so many different creative minds that don't follow the rules that influence the way that we consume products, that influence the way that we think about innovation and imagination. Um, and that there is just uh, less of a fear, I guess, of working outside of the box. Um, so I think that that is sort of what I hope for 2050 and what I'm actively trying to work towards. Um, but I think there's lots of reason to be excited. I think in 2050, hopefully we'll all be driving a bikini. So let's manifest that. But um, yeah. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah. I really hope, yeah, there will be like this approach of like, I really see a disco ball, you know, of different perspective, you know, like, and then every perspective is kind of accepted. And I think with this, yeah, we could innovate really, really cool things. Um, Jay, what do you what do you think when you think about design in 2050? Um, Katie mentioned something very, very important. The current hype around AI, hype, I think it will last. Um, the thing is with the current tools, and these are just tools, they will not replace anyone. These tools will bring some kind of democratization of design, of creativity, so that everyone who is, let's say, not able to draw something, when he draws a car, it simply looks like a five-year-old uh, uh, drawing, uh, when they can articulate it and get a far better result, so that they are happy with it, so that they mm. can maybe proceed towards the engineering, the execution, while the professionals will have get will are getting right now a huge set of tools to make their own work even far more better so here the ai tools will bring and will shape the society towards if i can do it in a slightly different way why can't you do it in a different way mm. so simply the demand this democratization of design, democratization of products, and hopefully as well manufacturing, will force the corporates to think in a slightly different way. So more and more, let's say, individualized mass production that will please our needs by 2050, hopefully earlier. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much, Katie, for being here. Um, I'm truly inspired. I love Dakini and um, yeah, it was an honor to have you here. We're looking so much forward to the next projects, to the art, to the technologies, to the design that you will create. And um, today it was, again, super cool that you were here. Thank you so much for your expertise. Um, if you want to reach out to us, you can use the Future Navigation platform. And I'm really looking forward to see you in the next episode. Thank you so much for being here and have a good evening, afternoon or morning, wherever you are. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.